You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and today we are going to be joined by a very special guest. That's right. Today in our show, we have Dr. Owen Strand. He is the Provost and Research Professor of Theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Arkansas, also known as the Strip Mall Seminary. We're going to include in the show notes, but you can definitely check out Owen's new book, Christianity and Wokeness. would also encourage you to follow him on Twitter, and you can check out his podcast, which is titled The Antithesis. Owen is doing a lot of fabulous work, so definitely encourage you to follow along with what he's doing. And in today's show, we're going to delve into a number of things, but most particularly, we're going to be talking about 1917, the movie. And we will also include in our show notes links to Owens. He's got several writings uh, on 1917, including on his own Substack. We're going to include notes for those, so you can click on them in the hyperlinks and go directly to that literature. Man, this is going to be a good show. I'm excited. Had a wonderful time talking with Owen. So sit back, relax, listen to the show, and then, by all means, check out 1917, the movie. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Eric Kahn, and I'm joined today by the one, the only, Dr. Owen Strand. Owen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Eric. Man, it's an honor to be on your podcast. I love your podcast and the stuff you're putting out there. So thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're glad to have you. Today, we're going to talk about a number of subjects. But first of all, first of all, I have to know how the strip mall seminary is treating you. Oh, man, business at the strip mall is booming. Um, seriously, it's been it's been great. Um, our uh, student body has doubled uh, fall, last fall to this year. Um, we added four professors in December. Um, including James White, the apologist. Uh, we, we added an on-the-ground professor named Jeff Moore in New Testament, who's a fantastic guy, Westminster Dallas grad, had classes with Beale and all the hitters, Sinclair Ferguson, and he's, he's doing a great job already teaching a gospels course for us. You know, Eric, I mean, a seminary has gotten so fancy and big in the modern era. Like, if you don't have a $25 million budget, do you even count, right? <laughs> right. Uh, if you don't have... A, if you don't have a climbing wall, do you even matter? But um, <laughs> we, all a seminary really is, because we're just trying to be biblical, frankly. So all a seminary really is, is just training men for the pastorate. Um, th- there's other things you can do. You will end up doing, no doubt, as as things grow by God's grace. But all it really is, is just a bunch of older men who are hopefully mature in the faith, mentoring younger men, and then trying to launch them by the grace of God into ministry. That's all it is. So we, we um, when I was hired, we can go into this if you want, but when I, when I was hired, um, some folks uh, torched me for leaving one of the world's biggest seminaries, which is true. Uh, Midwestern is a huge seminary doing, doing a lot of, of good things. And, uh, and then I went to this little seminary in a strip mall the the Jesus and John Wayne author and some others said, said had a conversation about that unbeknownst to me. I wasn't following it, wouldn't have seen it. But then somebody sent it to me, and then Danny Thursby over here at the seminary, uh, executive director, 
said on Twitter, I have half a mind to put that on a t-shirt. He was joking. And I saw Danny say that. And I was like, I'm a kind of hoodie guy. Here we are, you and I in our hoodies and uh, and a t-shirt guy. Grew up in basketball shorts all the time. You know, you like a suit, you like a good tie, you like a the you know, waistcoat like Tolkien. <laughs> That's right. But you can you can flex it, man. You can also wear a hoodie and a, and and basketball shorts. Anyway, so I was like, "Oh, that is fire! Let's let's put that on a t shirt." I'm crazy enough to do that, and so we did it, and it just it it went wild at G three and in the fall. Uh, Vody Bauckham, uh, we didn't give him a t shirt. He went down to the booth at G three and demanded a t shirt <laughs> and wore it. That's awesome. It's it's amazing how that works, though, right? Because like like I was telling you before. Everybody knows it because of the strip mall seminary. Yeah. Everybody's familiar with that, but it was meant as a, it was meant as a slam. It's kind of like, you know, yeah. calling somebody a Puritan and they're like, you know what? I think I'm gonna, actually going to own that. So there's some, there's some marketing wisdom here, Owen, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes Daryl Harrison might say your haters are your motivators, you know, or whatever. Um, sometimes those who stand against you um, actually push you to see something you're not seeing. I would never have done it. I've never done a t-shirt about anything. I may do some in the future. It's kind of fun or a hoodie, but I would never have thought of that. But hey, it kind of gave us um, a bit of an identity. And and we don't, I actually, I'm the provost of the school. I'm a provost of Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas. I teach theology, systematic theology here. And like we wear jackets in the in the classroom and ties. And so we want some of that like serious feel you know, but man, we can throw down too. We can, we can, uh, we can embrace a kind of, um, streets mentality. Like, yeah, at the end of the day, we're not anything big. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We're, we're nothing. Christ is everything. I am nothing. I, I, I really am, am not anything to, to, um, shout about. So, um, you know, if, if, if having strip ball seminary and t-shirt helps us remember that good. Yeah. Humble beginnings. That's, that's really awesome. One of the things I want to ask you, Owen, as we as we get started, uh, we're going to talk about the film 1917. You've written about this. Uh, mm. Really, really some awesome thoughts there. But you've also written on Christianity and wokeness. We won't necessarily get into that book, but I just want to ask you a question about standing firm, right? So a lot of the stuff that you've touched on that you've dealt with, um, obviously you're getting the the attention of uh, Christian Cobes Dumez, I think is the proper, I actually have no idea. Jesus and John Wayne author. Um, probably disagrees with us. I think is probably going to be the uh, <laughs> the summary of that. But mm. it, it is hard because it's you're going to be a lightning rod if you address these issues. So I'm kind of yes. curious, as a man, how do you deal with that in the culture in the context today? Um, that's a great question. I know you're that kind of guy too. Um, anybody with a podcast called Hard Manhood or Hard Men, <laughs> you know, is like stepping into it. You know, stepping into yeah. the fire. We're going to talk about a war movie, and and it seems to fit. Um, I was trained by God-centered men, um, and I think that had an effect on me. I'm no perfect man. I don't take criticism uh, the way I should, uh, I'm sure. Uh, I know I don't, but uh, we all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2, me included. But I was trained by men like Bruce Ware, who is this robustly God-centered theologian, and that really wore off on me because he and Wayne Grudem and others took stands, for example, uh, against feminism, against egalitarianism in years past. And seeing them do that had a real effect on me. Mm. Um, It also fit with my background because being from Maine, where there are very few Christians, I was one of the only Christians in my high school 
like the high school itself was like 160 students or something in Machias, Maine, coastal Maine, near Bar Harbor. And uh, I was one of probably, I don't know, two, three kids who would identify as a Christian. So I look back now, Eric, and I, I think God providentially was preparing me from my background to try to take humble little stands for the truth. And then you, get, you, you fast forward and I get training from men like Ware in taking a theological stand. And um, today I go to a text like 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and, and you, you have Paul saying, be immovable, stand mm. firm. It's translated different ways, but just hold your ground. I, 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 almost, I think that's probably the most undervalued trait in ministry today. There's a lot about being gentle. There's a lot about being gentle. There's a lot about uh, being nice and being friendly, and and the elders should be open to reason and humble and gentle and excel in those things. Bear the, all the fruits of the spirit. So we're not saying some are important, some aren't. But I think, in a very soft, feminized age, we're going to downplay the masculine virtue, or if you want to put it differently, the martial virtues. In fact, we're going to set them aside. In fact, stronger. We're we're going to to see them as bad. Um, the so-called masculine or martial virtues are, are going to be called, which are all throughout scripture, are going to be called antisocial, where feminine traits are social traits. So, so it's true that there is some antisocialness in some of the masculine traits. That, there's some truth there. But the way our culture means antisocial is not like, so you're going to lead a wilderness expedition that no one else would undertake, right? Or you're going to walk into enemy fire. That's not what our culture means. It's not, it's not congratulating you on being antisocial. It's saying that's bad, very yeah. bad. So basically, strong manhood is strong manhood is toxic masculinity. Um, but included in those masculine virtues from the word of God itself are um, is, excuse me, immovability, which I think you can trace back to a text like First Kings 2 2, be strong and show yourself a man, David to his son Solomon. Hmm. So strong manhood is just everywhere decried in the society and everywhere decried seemingly in evangelical culture, but it is squarely there. And it's actually tangent winding down here. It's actually, if you don't have it, you won't stand period. It's so huge. And so I I started reading Jesus and John Wayne because uh, I'm a fan of, you know, self-flagellation basically is what this comes down to. (laughs) But it was interesting to me because, she, like, she traces through the, the 20th century, going back to Billy Graham. She's like, Billy Graham was always talking about how Christians should be real men and Jesus was a warrior and all this stuff. I'm like, wow, this is great. I mean, I disagree with everything that you're arguing here, but really yeah. the point is that even Billy Graham, I think, recognized that if we wanted men to be a part of the church, it could not be painted in effeminate terms. But, but it's interesting, too, because it's a one-sided reading of Scripture, right? You're just picking certain passages where it's like, oh, Jesus seems pretty gentle here. But then later yeah. he says, hey, bring my enemies to me. I'm going to cut them up into pieces. You're like, mm-hmm. wow, I don't know if that fits the, uh, the, the feminine sure. Jesus that's being portrayed here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also interesting, Owen, because as we jump now into 1917, one of the things that struck me was this is really a film that I think would resonate with a lot of men. It has, um, particularly after reading some of the things you've written, um, I definitely got a lot more out of it. But, but I, I want to ask you a general question before we talk about 1917, just about movies in general. So mm. one of the things that uh, I did on the show was do like top 10 
you know, man movies. Um, and we didn't do Rambo. We did things like Braveheart, Patriot, uh, Gladiator, Cinderella Man, I think was on there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this really seems to resonate with men. So I want to ask you just a general question about these types of manly movies. They really seem to grip and stir men. And, and so I, I want to mm-hmm. ask you why you think that is. Oh, my stars. I think it's because we are hardwired for hard things. I think it's because mm. God embedded in the soul of men the call to take dominion. And the call to take dominion, even pre-fall, even Genesis 2, meant that a man was being called to become something greater than he was. Adam, mm. Adam was always going to have to uh, do hard things, not, not work against the creation the way he does post-fall, real historical fall by a real historical Adam. Um, but but that was hardwired into him nonetheless. I mean, the dominion mandate of Genesis 1, 26, 28 is not a, it's not like that was going to be done in a couple hours in the afternoon in Eden. Right. God didn't make Adam and Eve uh, to vanish into thin air six hours after he made them. He was making them for a life of mission, of glory in his name. And Adam was called to lead in that. And Adam was going to be the one who was going to uh, uh, work the creation predominantly while his wife was going to bear children and raise them to the glory of God, which is, of course, work. It's not that the man works and the woman doesn't work. Uh, She sits around staring at the ceiling all day. Uh, They're both working, but Adam is leading in that dominion mandate. So I think uh, then you bring in sin and you bring in the fact that we have. Uh, an enemy, a, a blood enemy in Satan, and um, yet we have this glorious call to honor God by his grace all throughout scripture. And so basically men are wired for adventure right. and following the fall, wired for adventure through the face of adversity. So the movies like the ones you mentioned and others we could name, I think you have Clint Eastwood as your um, That's right. profile The outlaw Josie Wales. That's right. The, oh, my word. Um, you know, um, men are drawn to that archetype of the, of the hero, right? And that's not something only Christians understand. Joseph Campbell wrote about that um, at some length. Um, but that's because ultimately, Eric, I think we, we, we men, all people actually, but we men yearned for the warrior savior. I'm writing my next book about on the atonement. I'm writing it this spring and it's uh, for PNR. It's under contract and it's called Jesus, the warrior savior. And my, my understanding of the atonement getting mildly afield here, but is that yes, penal substitution is the heart of the atonement. There is no forgiveness of sin without um, Jesus dying in our place, uh, taking on the wrath of the father, um, fulfilling the law perfectly. But in doing so, he destroys the devil. He takes away the devil's power and, uh, and wins conquest over Satan, which is then uh, brought to final realization in his second coming, of course. So ultimately, we're made for adventure. And then the true Adam is, a, is, is not a peacenik. He's not a draft dodger. Uh, he's not effeminate. Um, he, he is the warrior savior. He's the greater David. Uh, there's so much I could say. I, I'm leaving a lot on the table, but I think that's some of it. Yeah, no, I think it's awesome. And, and I love the, actually the tie-in to atonement because 
I was talking to a friend, uh, another pastor recently, and we were talking about, um, you hear in the church so often that the atonement is described as predominantly as Jesus as the lamb, which is true. Mm -hmm. John says this in John 1, is the lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. But what's so often pushed on that is like all these characteristics and character traits that that's, that's not what that passage is saying, that Jesus is like really sweet and gentle and caring. He's a sacrifice. And so I guess my point is seeing that that sacrificial service of Jesus is him crushing the head of the serpent. It isn't him being soft and effeminate, which is what often gets portrayed with self-sacrifice, right? Self-sacrifice itself is a very manly endeavor. Yeah, that's exactly right. He is gentle, but he, he's not only gentle. Um, he, he is, I think, I think he's the Davidic warrior. I think there, there's a lot that Jesus is in his coming. In my right. Christology class here at Grace Seminary this past week, we were talking about all the titles of the Son of God because I'm on the divinity of Jesus part of Christology this semester. Um, so there's a lot that Jesus is, uh, and, and it's hard to even teach on him and, and preach on him as you do and get your arms around who he is. But fundamentally, you've got to recognize that um, he, there's so much about the Davidic warrior motif with the life of Jesus that Matthew in particular brings out. And so um, I think that we've really lost that element, like you're saying. We've lost that part of Jesus. It's related, interestingly, to submission uh, uh, for all of us as Christians um, but also for women, people think that submission, they get it completely wrong. It, it, many theologians get submission completely wrong. Professing Christian theologians, they think it means inferiority and weakness. Actually, right. submission is a military term, right? And it means basically strength under control. It means discipline. It doesn't mean weakness or inferiority at all, ontologically. It means that that you are are under discipline, of course, for Christians by the power of God. So people think that a woman submitting to her husband is 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 the church, preachers saying, women be weak, be less than you are, or something like this. It's the dead level opposite. It's saying you have gifts, you have talents, you have strength of personality, whatever that may be but be controlled by God's power. So we, we misunderstand. Basically, Eric, I think the, the, the threads converge in that we misunderstand lamb-like sacrifice and, um, and submission. We, we, think it's, we think these things are something they're not. Yeah, I think that's really huge. And an interesting tie-in here too as well, submission, military term. Um, and really what we see in the uh, movie 1917 is a lot of the same patterns um, you point a lot of those out, redemptive storylines, uh, self-sacrifice, there's friendship. Um, as we start to unpack it, I want to give just for people who didn't maybe see the film or we'll just give a little bit of background about it. So it was released in 2019, rated R. Obviously, it's a war film, so there's some, you know, some serious content in there. The runtime on here is an hour and 59 minutes. Interestingly enough, it, it did rate pretty well. On IMDb, it was 8.3 out of 10, which for them is usually pretty good. One of the things that you bring up is Sam Mendes. Um, I think, and, and, and this is going to be one of the questions, the first questions I'll ask you actually is, he can often be, in this, this film especially, he's kind of misunderstood, I think. Um, a lot mm. of the criticism about the film was bad, but he's also got, I mean, with this film, Best Motion Picture of the Year nomination, 
Um, so there, even though there was a lot of negative criticism, I think a lot of people recognize that there, there is something to this film. Um, and, and then again, he did win Best Director uh, in 1999 with not my favorite film, but, but I can understand why it did, which was American Beauty. Um, right. He's also directed Skyfall, Kite Runner, and Jarhead. So that's kind of, the, again, like I said, the first question I want to ask you, why is Sam and why do you think this film is so misunderstood by so many critics? Yeah, great question. And by the way, a quick addendum to what we were talking about with film. I, I have to watch myself and be careful as one in ministry what films I recommend because some films that have a lot of great content about manhood, for example, you know, do have some some sexually explicit stuff. And so I want to be yeah. real careful about that myself. Let let everyone have their own conscience and figure out how to handle that. We're not talking about legalism here. Uh, but rather obedience to God. So I have to watch myself. There's a lot that I don't watch. I've I haven't watched uh, Game of Thrones, for example. I know I would love a lot of Game of Thrones. I love fantasy. I love sci-fi. I love war. You know, but but I have to be careful. Anyway, that's just that's just thrown in. Yeah. But with Mendez, with Mendez, um, he's seen as a popcorn director, and he's been a popcorn director at certain points. But the the deal is, um, even when he's making popcorn, sometimes um, it's rich popcorn. I guess you'd say it's truffle popcorn because um, uh, with with a previous film he did, Skyfall, that was basically treated, which which should be handled with care in the terms I was just saying. He he, um, it's a Bond film, but ooh, that's where I understood myself. I haven't I haven't watched all of of Mendez's films or something like this. I'm not an expert in film or Mendez. Let that be said, but I love aesthetics. I love beauty. I uh, love the life of the mind, love cultural engagement. And and I just realized when I watched uh, that film, earlier film, whoa, he's making profound statements about love of country, uh, about duty. Um, actually, um, one of the key characters, M, in Skyfall dies in a church um, after after Bond has just returned to his ancestral home. And it, I think it turns out he's, he's Catholic. His, his ancestors are Catholic, that is. Anyway, there's, there's more to be said about all that. But I think when I, I realized, I just, nobody said this to me. I thought um, Sam Mendez is up to more than people think he is. Uh, after the, the headquarters of the, the agency is blown up in, in this film, uh, the only thing that really survives is a Churchill bulldog. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, there's another scene. So there's an homage there, I think, to Churchill and to Churchillian values, probably. And then there's another scene where Bond is looking at uh, a huge uh, 19th century uh, British warship. And his younger uh, uh, co-worker comes along and, and disdains the portrait. But Bond is looking. There's not a lot of dialogue. Mendes hides this, basically, but it's there. Well, and I was going to say, too, the... Even the uh, right, I think it's in Skyfall when they the building gets blown up and they have to go into the tunnels that Churchill built. Even right, so more Churchill. Good point. I didn't. I didn't think of that. That's a good point. Um, I'd like to think about that more honestly. But anyway, um, he's looking at at the ship and it's clear that Bond respects it and sees something in it. And so imperialism colonization is is basically just burned down to ash today. You don't even have a conversation about it. Uh, and, and there is a conversation to have about it. There's good and bad for sure in terms of British imperialism, but uh, there's also there are some virtues to be um, squeezed out of that era. And you know, Admiral Nelson and that sort of heroic bravery. Right? 
all this to say, wow, we're, we're a little <laughs> bit of field. When it came to 1917, a lot of critics said, oh, Mendez is doing this trick shot thing with the tracking shot that lasts yep. for 10 to 15 minutes or whatever, longer than that. Um, I guess it's more like 30. Um, and I thought, based on previous viewings of films of his, no, 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 no. He's up to something. I'll shut up here so you can ping in. But it, I, that especially came through. It came through the first viewing in theaters with with the trees, and then when I rewatched it and I could sub, I could do the captions. Um, uh, that came out all the more. Yeah, and and it's really interesting because so I went and I watched the film once, and I was intrigued but confused, which is usually that's usually a good thing with some films, right? Like, it, it's yes. sort of like the first time you read the Bible and you're like, wait, what? Just because yes. there's so many things to piece together. And one of the things I realized, so I, I read, I think uh, it was in, was it Providence Mag, the first essay mm-hmm. that you wrote on it? Yes. Okay. And then, uh, and then I was reading your Substack later. And what really hit me about this film, so then I went back and rewatched it again once it was out, uh, out of theaters and stuff like that. But what really hit me is it's really like an onion. I've watched it probably five times now. And every mm-hmm. time I watch it, I kind of find more. And so mm-hmm. it brings up a really good question, right? Scripture is written this way, it's layered. And, mm-hmm. and scripture is this amazing, as Jordan Peterson was recently talking about, it's this amazing library of books that you just never seem to be able to come to the end of. And actually, you know. the more you, you dig into it, you realize, wow, this is so much deeper than I, I would have thought even the first read. Mm-hmm. So my question is for film, for art, you know, we might say, and I think many moderns would say this, listen, I, I, I go on BuzzFeed, I, I listen to, you know, TMZ shows, I, I'm, I want stuff on the surface, just plain, clear, obvious, but good art doesn't always do that, does it? So wh- why have layers to a piece of art like 1917? Oh, man, this is, this is such a fun discussion. Uh, God, God has made himself intelligible to a child. And it's sometimes in the New Testament, children who most right. quickly grasp the things of God where trained scribes don't. So God is immediately intelligible to us. We don't need any training. We don't need courses to understand that God exists. Um, Romans 1, we all know God exists. And yet, the special revelation of God, as you rightly said, well said, is super layered. It, it, it is at once intelligible in a principial quick form, and it is so deep you will never come close to exhausting it. Uh, and so I think that echoes into uh, broader existence. And uh, we can at once know how we're supposed to live as a Christian, for example, and yet the depth and richness and complexity and difficulty and beauty of the human experience is something that envelops us and causes us to think about it and dwell on it and try to process it and live through it all our days. Mm. And um, that's part of what is so wonderful about film. Film is really my favorite medium. Um, Film allows you to create a kind of superhumanity or, or, or superhuman existence where things are clarified and heightened. I'm not a film critic, but so I'm grasping for words, but there's something to this where 
um, there, there's there is there is something. I'm not saying film is redemptive, you know, film in itself, right? But there is something to a beautiful film, a true film, a deep film, uh, that is is almost a transcendent experience. Um, and that's ultimately there are transcendent experiences in this world because there is a transcendent God. And so knowing the transcendent God biblically is always going to be a profound experience and knowing the transcendent God or, or um, understanding the world God has made, appreciating the world God has made aesthetically is always going to be a multi-layered experience. Yeah. I think that's such a huge point. And it's interesting in the film because the the layers seem to happen almost right away. So the, again, the first time I was watching it, um, there's this scene where he's getting his orders from Colin Firth. He's kind of in the underground in the trench and he's going to be sent on this mission. And uh, I was sitting, I was actually watching the film with uh, my pastor at the time who was, uh, you know, in his fifties. So he, he was seeing things that I wasn't right. But there's this line that he gives him as he's going. He's like, you know, a, a huge troop. What are we doing? How are we going to accomplish this? And he, he quotes, what sounds like at the time, I have no clue. It sounds like poetry. Mm-hmm. So he says, down to Gehenna or up to the throne, he travels the fastest who travels alone. And mm-hmm. my pastor turned and he looked at me and he goes, that's huge. And I'm like, okay. Yes. You know, I, I have no idea what's going on. Well, later I go home and I'm, I'm just intrigued by that line because he said it and I don't know what it means. So I go home and, and I guess all of this to say, this is kind of how layers, one instance of how layers work. So I go home mm-hmm. and I look it up and it's from Rudyard Kipling, The Winners. And it's a poem about friendship and mission and how if you're on a mission, but you're waiting on a friend, there might come a point where you have to go it alone. So just, I mean, the, the doors of my mind are just blown off at this point. Like, it seems like it. in the moment, just a throwaway Rudyard Kipling quote, mm-hmm. but it's so tied into the other things we'll talk about in the film. Friendship, obviously the importance of that. I think also it's this amazing foreshadow of what's to come in the film. But again, it really is one of those things that it makes you think, it makes you go back and look something up. I've often said this about Nate Wilson, Indy Wilson, in his books, he'll, he'll throw something out there and you're like, but what does that mean? And then you have to go look it up, but it, it really just has a way of engaging you. So yes, I, I just weigh in on that. Yeah. Oh, uh, totally. There's more to this film that, than, than certainly I know I've written, I wrote, I wrote a first piece for the center for public theology, which I used to lead in my previous place. Um, and then I wrote a second piece for Providence magazine and I think May, 2020. Okay. And I wrote a third piece this past fall, I think of like almost 7,000 words. And I, I could write a book on 1917. I don't mean I should. I don't mean the world wants it. But I could write it almost for my own enjoyment to try to process it. And you just picked up on something that I did not cover. And uh, my friend Kyle Swanson, uh, a pastor in the Phoenix area, said that the scene where um, the, the protagonist um, is, is uh, Schofield is with this woman, and uh, then he he sings a little nursery rhyme to the baby. Um, there's a song there that I haven't even gotten to, but there's something, there's something going on there as well. So 
not to get sidetracked on that, but yeah. just to jump back to what you're saying, this film is very textured. It's not a little bit of texture. It is not a trick shot film. Many critics said it was. Many critics derided it. Uh, some said it was just jingoistic uh, war movie, uh, hero mongering, these sorts of things. There were all sorts of slanders among elite critics uh, who know a lot more about film than I do. And I sense they were wrong and they are wrong. They are dead wrong about this film. There, there's a similar moment. There's 25 moments we could talk about a lot and you're guiding <laughs> yeah. the conversation. Yeah. But just 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 after that, um, that quick poem, which is powerfully said by Colin Firth, by the way, what an actor. The, the supporting cast of this film is immaculate. Um, uh, uh, there's a, there's a, a leader who throws, uh, liquor on the two soldiers, Blake and Schofield, just before they go over the wall. And he says, I absolve you of your sins. Wow. So there, so already twice, uh, Eric, we have spiritual theological language, Gehenna, as you just rightly quoted, and then absolution of sins. So at the beginning of this quest, I think what some of what Mendez and his screenwriter, Christy Wilson Cairns, I, I often reverse that name, are doing is saying this is a spiritual quest. It is not just a war film. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting. One of the things you bring up in your essays on this is I think it's on the like 35 minute mark, 34 minute mark, somewhere in there. But we have this line of keep your eyes on the trees. And then these trees play a prominent role throughout the film. So I wonder if you might just start unpacking what is the significance of the trees and what are some of the scenes that, that play into this? Oh, man, um, it's dangerous uh, because they start the film with a tree. The opening shot of the film is this beautiful tree. And I'm from Maine. I love trees. My father was a forester for his living. So I'm, I'm uh, predisposed to love trees. We, a lot of us love trees, love nature, right, as Christians. And then um, one of the characters is sleeping against a tree. And um, then at that 34 or five minute mark, um, one of them says to the other, keep your eyes on the trees. And that, Eric, I firmly believe, I am dying to talk with uh, Sam Mendes about this film and his screenwriter. It would truly be, it's not like my, my top bucket list item, um, but it would, that would be a dream. I, oh, yeah. I just want to know. I want to know how much of this is right and how much is wrong. But anyway, I I am certain, uh, without talking to them, that Mendes is talking to us, and he's saying, "Keep your eyes on the trees." And the trees, I think, it this is indeterminate, but I think they represent, at the very least, beauty and stability, and the flowering of goodness, basically, and um. At the most, I think trees may even stand in for something like the divine. And it's not settled in my own mind as of my speaking right now, be, because I need to, as you were talking about, go back and view the film more. Yeah. It may, trees may probably refer to civilization and at its apex, but could even go beyond that because of other details we can talk about. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to me because immediately when you started talking about the theme of trees, um, I think in seeing new, seeing with new eyes, James Jordan, one of the things he talks about is that throughout scripture, men are trees. Um, you know, yeah. we're planted by the streams of water, you know, Psalm yeah. 1, you know, you, you have that picture. 
Um, but even mm. in the Gospels, like when the blind man is regaining his sight and he's like, all I see is trees. And James Jordan's like, yeah, that's what he did see. So there's this mm. like scriptural typology there with trees throughout scripture as well. You know, being pictures of the kingdom, of men, etc. One of the, the scenes that really struck me in the film was, and I think it struck me because I missed it completely the first time around. They're, they're, right before Blake dies, they're walking down yep. the hill through cherry trees, a cherry orchard. Oh, and he's giving the most beautiful description of different kinds of cherries uh, when they're in bloom, but he specifically talks about what happens when they're cut down. And then, so there's this picture of like death, resurrection. Of course, I'm thinking of like, you know, the shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse, right? We're even mm -hmm. given that picture in scripture of like, things mm -hmm. get cut down, but they regrow. And so I guess, just walk me through that scene. Why is that scene so important to the film? That scene is stunningly important to the film and I think is actually I'm pulling up the language just so that I can get it from my my substack is called uh, to re-enchant the world it used to be called excitingly Owen Strand substack and I <laughs> workshopped that with a brand agency and and really yeah. uh, knocked it out of the park anyway so um on on to re-enchant the world this this substack I have um, I wrote this long essay that you've alluded to kindly already. Wilson Cairns, Christy Wilson Cairns is a screenwriter. So I okay. don't know how much of the vision in the film is Sam Mendes, how much of it is Wilson Cairns, how much of it is both of them together. All that I don't know, as I say. But in this cherry tree scene, um, Blake and Schofield walk through this grove of trees and um, Schofield says they've chopped them all down. The Germans throughout the film, the Nazis, uh, desecrate. They put trees in the middle of roads. Uh, they they desecrate this forest and, and other forests. And so they have no love of the created order. Um, uh, and, and so Schofield, to this point, hasn't really been paying a lot of attention to what is around him. I think one of the things that is going on in 1917 is his spiritual awakening. Uh, mm -hmm. Initially, he he is just surviving. He's very good at war. He's a good soldier, much better than Blake. But all he's doing is surviving. He's closed himself off to his family, not because he's actually hard hearted, but because war is terrible and it's very likely he won't survive. And so he's just closing down and trying to get through life. But Blake is the one in this scene and the one prior who wakes him up, who brings him back to life, if you will, so to speak. And there's more that then takes place. Anyway, Blake in this scene notes that these are cherry trees, cherries, Lamberts. And Blake says that most people think there's only one type, but there's lots of them. Cuthbert's, Queen Anne's, Montmorency's, sweet ones, sour ones. And so what I think is happening here, again, a supposition, is that um, in some form, the director and screenwriter are saying, people aren't awake to beauty. Beauty is all around them. They look and see a tree. Most of us just see trees, right? But then there are cherry trees. And then not only are there cherry trees, there are different types of cherry trees that produce different types of cherries. Um, that fits whatever the, the two, two leaders here are doing with this film. That fits beautifully with the Christian worldview. Um, yes, there are trees. Yes, we can see God made them. So you can know that at a principial level and move on and have a good day. But actually, if you linger in a kind of C.S. Lewis-ish way, you're going to see beauty in the particularity of creation, not just the generic generalness of creation. Oh, look, a beautiful field, a beautiful forest. No, zoom in. And, and you won't lose your wonder as you zoom in. Hmm. 
your wonder will grow as you zoom in, so to speak. And Blake is doing that for Schofield and doing that for us. And then there's further depth here in that, as I say, the Germans have cut the the tree trees down. They don't care a whit about the beauty of creation. And I don't think Mendes is anti-German as if all German people are in view here for him or for me, let that be said, but in, it's a war film. Uh, and, but but uh, uh, Schofield says it's terrible that they've been cut down. And Blake says they'll grow again when the stones rot. That means the, the little pits, the cherry pits. Um, you'll end up with more trees than before. Interesting. Oh, oh my stars, Eric. I think we could have just gotten a cinematic one line distillation of basically the biblical answer to the problem of evil. I may be brewing the tea hot here, but <laughs> I love it. At the very least, transmuting it to my Christian worldview, where aesthetics explodes all around me all the time because God is the fount of beauty, you'll end up with more trees than before fits elegantly, at least for us, I think, with the cross. The, yeah. Jesus is killed, which is the most evil thing imaginable. That's the greatest injustice that has ever happened or will happen. And yet from it comes nothing less than our atonement and our salvation. So we are very close to, in fact, I think we are at a glorious statement of our, our answer to the problem of evil. In the midst of a scene about trees that no one paid attention to in the reviews. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it makes me think too, right? In John's gospel, we're told that uh, Jesus is like a, a grain of wheat who falls into the ground and then it has mm. this super abundant harvest. Same deal, same principle um, that mm. when something dies and it's sown in the ground, it multiplies. It doesn't just produce one, uh, but it actually mm. multiplies. The, the other thing that's really interesting to me about this scene and mm -hmm. I think about it Okay, just from the perspective of men, but really anybody, we know that life is a is a veil of tears, right? We know that there's going to and, and just following this scene, we're going to find that out as they go down mm -hmm. the hill and into the farmhouse. But it is really men. I, I know I can do this. I remember John Piper saying about Darwin that he got just so fixated on his work that he could never see beauty anymore. Mm -hmm. And you think about a war scene. How can you recognize beauty? in trench warfare it's the opposite of beauty it's the opposite of glorious and wonderful and seeing your friends wow. die and seeing people bayoneted in these we look back and we think ridiculous charges on each other that people are walking into machine gun fire it's 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 ridiculous yes. but in the midst of all of that that you could have beauty and so i think you're right like men especially we need to be woken up to the fact that yeah we're fighting a war there's culture war there's spiritual warfare there's all these things going on around us and we see casualties Yep. Yet in the midst of all of that, there's tremendous beauty in God's creation and the way that he loves us. And he displays it through simple things like, you know, the varieties of cherries. I mean, I, again, I'm watching the film. I'm sucked into the war drama. And right. then so you see the cherry thing and you're like, it kind of forces you to let your guard down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And to realize, yeah, there is beauty in the midst of all this. A parallel for, for life, no doubt. That is that is a great point that. Uh, that put it, you just put it in a way I didn't, I didn't condense it in, in my writing, my <laughs> voluminous writings on this film. Uh, Mendez has, has to, to take what you said and, and even workshop it here briefly, 
Mendez has cloaked a film about beauty and a film about war. And the critics, so many of them, not all of them, as you rightly pointed out, and some did laud the film. The film made a ton of money. People love these films when they're made. People celebrate the traditional films, by the way. Men love films about sacrifice and conquest and victory and heroism and death uh, uh, because of how we're wired. And yet we get like one every three years nowadays. But I digress. Um, Mendez has made a film about beauty. And a lot of people think it's a film about war. But if you're paying attention to these conversations, you see it. And um, not because we're some genius interpreter, but just trying to pay attention. That's what we do with with scripture itself, right? We're not genius interpreters. We don't have something new to add to scripture. We just pay attention to the to the verses, to the clauses, to the actual words themselves. Theology is a matter of, in many cases, philology, the words of scripture uh, and the distinctions we draw therein. Uh, but um, in this following scene from the cherry tree scene, um, there's a further exploration really of, of, um, of a beautiful life, if you want to use that term, because Blake encounters, the two men encounter a German pilot who's on fire, who's going to die. And Blake, this, this sensitive soul, humane soul, tries to save the pilot and the pilot kills him. And um, in the midst of Blake then dying, um, he says to Schofield, this is one of the most wrenching death scenes ever shot. He says, tell me you know the way. Mm. And in terms of mm. the, the internal story of the film, that means simply, tell me you know the way to my brother so that you can deliver the news of this impending assault and save them. That's the central conceit of the film. But I don't think that's all that line means, at least, again, interpreted from my Christian theology. Tell me you know the way. This dying man, his, his life slipping away by the second, is, is yearning to know the way. Uh, that's actual language that Jesus applies to himself in John 14, 6. I am the way. And so man dying does not know the way. Mm. But we who are Christians in God's grace have been given the gift of knowing the way, that which everyone is trying to find and cannot. So powerful. Yeah, it really is so powerful. It's interesting too, Owen, in that scene, um, and again, this was like my fourth watching where I kind of noticed this, but um, Mm -hmm. one of the things that happens before the pilot crashes into the barn in the death scene is they find milk in a jar or jug milk container and they put it in their canteen well it's interesting because that's the scene where you know blake dies Mm -hmm. later as schofield is going through the town he finds the woman and the starving child because there's no milk so he gives the child milk sings as sort of like a father to them and it really made me think about it's 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 this picture of how men dying in war are giving life to their mm. families and the other people so that they can survive. And so really, if you follow this throughout history, this is what men are for. They shed blood to give life to family, to civilization, to their people. So just in a very interesting way, like the, the, the milk of death gives way to the milk of life. And I mean, again, it's one of those things where I, I'm watching it and you're just so moved with some of the tenderness 
of the family scenes because he goes from literally like killing people, running for his life, almost dying, having gruff conversations with other soldiers to yep. flipping a switch to being this tender, life-giving father in the home. And I think to me, it's a good picture. We always talk about with masculinity. Guys are like, oh, you want, you want to be a hard man. So you think being mean to women and children is good? I'm like, no. Like our, our views of masculinity in today's culture are so myopic. They're like, you know, either you're the worst, most aggressive, nasty, violent man on the planet, or you're a complete soft shell crab. But life, kind of like the film for masculinity, is nuanced. It's subtle. It's got layers. It's not, it's not just surface level. That is exactly right. Strong manhood is what the world most needs. I, I do mean most needs. A strong statement. People think when we say that, we mean imperial, angry, macho manhood. And that's actually not a fraction of what we mean. We mean men who are men like Jesus. And we mean men who are courageous and yet gracious. We mean the man who taxes his body to provide for his family. And then the man who comes home and scoops up his tiny little blonde daughter and gives her a kiss and listens to her stories and goes to the tea party with her. I could say more, but we yeah. don't mean what people think we mean. Um, yeah. That's what's so tragic about the kind of Jesus and John Wayne critique is we are completely misunderstood. And yet our world is burning all around us. Literally, it's, it's burning in some cases. It certainly burnt a year ago with numerous American cities torched because we're in the era of weak men. And yet when people step up and do something heroic, everybody <laughs> applauds. Yeah. Um, yeah. So moving out of the motif of fire to the motif of um, sacrifice, for example, um, recently, just some weeks ago in Michigan, a young football player named Tate Meyer, apparently by all reports, ran toward a school shooter and died. Hmm. Uh, as for doing so, didn't didn't have to run toward the school shooter. Would have was was not near the, sh the shooter initially. Um, would have would have survived. Would have kept playing football. Had a, had D one offers and these sorts of things. Mm. But ran toward the shooter. And in those moments, Eric, there's this inevitable pause on all the big talk about toxic masculinity because there is inescapable truth being seen that mm. the great need of our world is men for others, men who lay their lives down for others. There is nothing evil about that. There is nothing mm. bad about that. That is what the world most needs because of how God has set up the family, marriage, uh, society, and the church. Literally, the need of all of those spheres is strong manhood, which doesn't mean chest-beating manhood. It means biblical manhood. It means Christ-shaped manhood. But tragically, the God of this age, the ruler of this world, as Jesus calls him numerous times, Satan, has blinded in our time, has blinded eyes and caused them to think that the solution, the true solution is the problem. And mm. we in the church are in an era now where the wind is in our face culturally, and we very simply are going to have to keep making the cases you do and I do in our different corners that no, you have seen this totally wrong. Um, what you think is reality is unreality, and biblical truth 
is reality. Mm. Uh, and, and so what we most need is, is strong manhood and, and, and Schofield is that strong man. And Blake has awakened him, has begun to awaken him back to his family and talking about medals, pieces of tin. Schofield derides the medals he has won for masculine bravery. And Blake says, no, those, that those pieces of tin, they, they matter. They, 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 they symbolize, uh, not just a moment, but they symbolize your character basically. Um, and so Blake began that awakening of Schofield back to the world uh, that God has made and back to the, the goodness of the family. And that scene that you point out with the milk theme that I, I didn't even capture fully, uh, I, I love your point there, brings that, brings that to further development. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. The, the other thing, Owen, I, I wonder about this film um, it is so many of the critics, right? The people who got the film wrong. I noticed we're writing about it in this, you know, we live in this like deconstructing empire period of history where all empire was evil, just like masculinity, all, all masculinity is evil. But, but I was thinking about it because of the film that a lot of the things that are happening, it's the British empire, you know, clearly at a point where it's, it's tapering off, right? I'm not saying it's expanding at this point, but it mm -hmm. was the British empire who was boots on the ground fighting Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. um, it was the British Empire who produced men like Schofield. W one of the things that uh, at the end of the film, uh, when Schofield finds Blake's brother, um, one of the things I saw get a, a lot of criticism was the quote unquote stiff upper lip British culture, where he's telling an officer mm. like, your brother's dead. And they were like, oh, typical stiff upper lip. You know, here's this man who just grits it out and is like, thank you for telling me you did a good mm -hmm. job. And you could tell he's moved, but he goes back. He says, I have men to tend to. So I, I read that scene completely differently. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we're post-1970 therapeutic moral deism. Everything's in the language of feelings and therapy. And, and we produced a generation of snowflakes and safe, safe spaces, right? But one of the things that struck me was we actually, as a man, all know deep down that you have to be that stiff upper lip guy sometimes. And there was something about the British mindset, the Christian British mindset, that was like, look, man, things suck. Like, you are going to have to carry your virtue and you're, you're going to have to stiffen your spine and make it through this because people are depending on you. So yes. I actually saw that, that moment as like, well, what do you, you know, to the critics, what do you want this guy to do? You want him to just go cry and get a therapist or they, they have a war to fight. There's no time for that. And so I actually... Thought that scene was great. Anyway, you know, yep. zooming back out, it seems like a lot of the critiques are coming from that like deconstructing empire, post-colonialism type type ideology. Do you agree? Disagree? What are your thoughts? Hundred percent. Colonialism had real weaknesses and flaws and sins um, in much of the world that colonized many many uh, powers colonized. And so where sure. there was racism and slavery and, and such things, that's, that's very bad exploitation. But that's not all that happened in imperialism and colonialism. And so it's a multi-sided reality. If you say anything uh, to try to capture the complexity of it, as on other subjects, you will be seen as a, a out and out defender of it when you're not. You're trying to just think through it, which is what we train people to do, which is what Christians surely must do. And then uh, for example, I was trained in a humanities program. I went, I went to a liberal secular uh, college and, and had a liberal arts background. So 
So the liberal arts, so to speak, which appear to be almost completely collapsed in America and the West, were all about training you in, in, in what a good citizen is and what a good society is and, and these sorts of things. And so part of what you do is you think through things critically. But now even critical thought is is bad. Criti- uh, saying there are strengths and weaknesses to something is, um, is itself uh, outmoded. Uh, that's because education has been replaced by ideology. Ideology has you just hmm. confess certain core realities like like there's a code, like a, a one-page code that you repeat over and over again mindlessly. You don't think through things. You just confess the ideological truths. But I, but truth is a dangerous word there because people don't even believe in truth. It's not even it's not even true truth in a Christian sense, a Schaeferian sense, certainly a biblical sense. It's um, it, it's just what it's it's what the ruling class, it's what the the, the powerful say is is actionable. Um, whereas Christians stand for thinking through things. Christians have a textured, multi-layered book, for example, the Bible, um, as you were bringing out earlier, that if you grapple with, will show you profound uh, 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 depth and complexity of the human person, for example, and kings and figures. And so um, that's part of why you mentioned Jordan Peterson a few minutes ago, and wow, am I on different tangents here, but that's part of why Jordan Peterson has become so yeah, popular. And Joe Rogan is so popular, including among men, um, but not just among men. Those figures are some of the last folks in Western civilization to actually have debate and discussion and dialogue and critical thought and critical speech. And they don't all agree. They're, they're very complicated. The, the intellectual dark web that popped up a few years ago that has, seems to have kind of lost its steam featured people who didn't agree with one another at all on many things. It was simply that they were willing to question ideology. Um, many of them were actually on the left, by the way. Uh, but I digress. Um, all this to say that um, when you reckon with that character, I think you're getting a contrast in 1917 between Blake's brother, uh, powerfully played by Richard Madden, with um, Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Um, yes, part of this yes. film is a study of men in war. Actually, it's this film is many things. Um, you could you could go back and rewatch it simply for um, the men in war motif. How do different men react to war? Yeah, they're just like the cherries. There's a variety. There is a variety, and so Cumberbatch with a glorious scar down his eye. I wish I could have one of those, by the way. Um, <laughs> just You would take a guy who looks like that 30% more seriously right off the jump, but I digress. Um, Cumberbatch is the man who needs to go to war. Listen, in a fallen world, men need to lead in war. Someone has to go to war. No one wants to. Someone has to go to war. Uh, ultimately, that, that theme is, is shown in Christ. The reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 3, 8, was to destroy the works of the devil. Hmm. Jesus is the greater David who goes out and fights the greater Goliath when no one else can, no one else will. What do the, what do the vaunted disciples do when it is zero hour and it's time for Jesus to truly face down the devil, make atonement for sin, uh, absorb the Father's wrath against sin? What do the disciples do? They scatter. Jesus is the greater David. So. Benedict Cumberbatch represents what you must have in, in battle, spiritual or otherwise, the one who will fight. But he has lost basically 
he 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 seems to have lost his capacity um to differentiate between needed offensive uh 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 thrusts and, and those that should be called off right and and we could go back to his dialogue and piece that out more whereas richard madden's character blake's brother um awakens to the sadness of his brother's death mm. and there's this glorious resolution of the tin motif in that scene where um Schofield derided metals as just bits of tin, uh, not just metals, but sort of the, the material effects of a life, if you will. And now all that remains of Blake, there's no body, uh, uh, there's, no, there's no letter, you know, death letter to pass on. There's just a few scraps. And that's all he And it means the world on. to his brother. And it means the world. And, and we're left wow. to um, extrapolate probably that 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 Blake's brother takes those back to his family and they remember Blake by because they're not getting the body back. There's not going to be a funeral with the body present, at least. This is it. And Man. so Schofield has come full circle. No critic mentioned this. I'm not, I'm not a genius of film at all, but no critic picked this up. And this is huge. He doesn't just he doesn't just get the assault called off. And it's a great battle scene. It is a great battle scene. Mendes is a killer director of of major films, but it is that Schofield comes to resolution. He derided bits of tin and now he hands them off. He sees the value of a life. Wow. That's, that's so incredible. Yeah. And, and the other thing is too, if I'm remembering this right, when he's at mm. the tree at the final scene, does he not open a tin? That's it's, it's like a tin that's got the picture of his family in it. Was it a tin? That's a great question. It's something like that. It's it's a little locket, yes, or 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 um, I don't remember the exact material object, but you're right, Eric. There's that's another part. It's fascinating too, and and, and as we wrap it up, I just want to maybe close with a few scenes that we can talk about, including this last one. Um, before we get to that, though, um, there is the scene where it's pretty much like, okay, there, here's my theory. He like quote-unquote dies, falls in the river. It's sort of like a baptism. He emerges out of the baptism through the corpses, and he walks into the trees where they're singing. I can't remember the song, but is it not a gospel tune? It is. Um, yes. Keep going. I'll get it. I'll get the name. Yeah, but it's, it's just fascinating to me. Like you, you see the really total transformation of this guy. Um, he goes from somebody who, in the beginning, he's like very begrudging about the mission. Um, yes. it, he he doesn't want to go on it. He's pissed that he got picked to be on the mission uh, with mm -hmm. Blake. Um, kind of a picture of friendship, like the unintended mission that we sometimes get put on. God puts us on. There's a purpose. There's a call. But there's no mission, no hero's journey that you go on where it's not this totally transforming, again, baptism being the picture he seems to be dead in the river, emerges through corpses that have floated where seemingly the Nazis have been dumping civilian bodies. And again, just this, the, the, the thing that struck me about the singing in particular was just absolutely beautifully sung song in the midst of a war, in the midst of a bunch of men and soldiers who are just enraptured by what's being sung. Yes. Um, there is... <sighs> There's so much to those two scenes. 
I love your I love your suggestion of baptism being signaled by Schofield going through the waters and coming out alive, going in them dead, basically, or just about dead and coming out alive. That's that's a great thought. I didn't say that. I hadn't thought that. But um, what does happen, what I do talk about in the substack I wrote, it's called The True Meaning of 1917. Um, what does happen is cherry leaves fall on him and, and, and awaken him. I did not realize that's what that was. Yes, it's cherry blossoms wow. that fall on him. Um, so again, let me just say this again. You and I shouldn't be doing this. We're not paid to do this work. Film critics should <laughs> right. are paid pretty good money still to do this kind of piecing together, and they, they yeah. ain't doing it. But anyway, um, the song that is sung is The Wayfaring Stranger, and this is going to make both of our hearts beat faster. It's a, it's a Johnny Cash song originally, and it's updated um, for this film. Um, and in, in this song that is sung in the clearing, that Schofield comes up out of the waters to hear, um, y- you hear this, but golden fields lie just before me where, go- where God's redeemed shall ever sleep. Mm. The singer sings that. Eric, there is, that is not a little detail throwaway. That no. is, I don't know Mendez's worldview. I don't know the screenwriter's worldview, but somebody in there is thinking at the very least, spiritually and theologically in a Christian adjacent way and possibly more um, because that's not the terminating scene, but it's, and we got to talk about the last scene, by the way, I got to come back to that. But um, the whole thing is now framed as it began with the absolution of their sins. The whole, the whole mission is now framed in terms of redemption and heaven, man. It's just incredible. The, the amount of layers that are involved here. It sort of reminds yeah. me too of the, um, you know, th- there's this question, right? Of like, what's the true interpretation? It, w- it would be fantastic to talk to these people. Um, that'll mm-hmm. be my, uh, same here. That's my uh, <laughs> pinnacle for, you know, get Sam Mendes on the show or sit down with him or something. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but it is really interesting. It reminds me back to something that Jordan Peterson said when he's talking about scripture in this recent Joe Rogan podcast, Mm. but it kind of reminds me of this where he said, it's not simply that the Bible is true. It's that it's the basis for all truth. Like without the Mm. common web of understanding, nothing else can be true. So even, Mm. and it makes me think of like Joe Rogan, you know, the atheist, even for you to have conceptions about hating God is dependent on the fundamental presuppositions of the reality that is God and, and predominantly from yes. scripture, right? So it's mm-hmm. the story that interprets all stories. So even if, and I'm not saying Sam Mendes is a Christian or, or the screenwriter or whatever, we, I, I genuinely don't know. Right. But even if they're not, they, they have, somebody has their mind wrapped around true reality, like reality as it is, not reality as the world often tells us it is. Right. That's right. Yeah. And I would tweak Peterson only ever so slightly while being thrilled with that statement and hoping it means that he is, he is crossing the line or has crossed the line into the kingdom because he, is, he reminds me of that figure in, in the book of Acts. Some of you are not far from the kingdom of God. He, he, yeah. is, he seems to be in that category. Um, but the only tweak I would make is the ground of truth is God. Um, 
yes. God is the ground of truth. And then the God who speaks and gives yes. us revelation and then general and special. And, and so the Bible is the preeminent source of truth, but ultimately it's God himself. Um, the Logos, yeah. The Logos, yes. So, um, yeah, fundamentally, this film, this film is showing us, it's showing us a, a, a kind of a pilgrim's progress quest, frankly. I, I, I wonder, as you were saying a minute ago, we don't know the worldview behind it, but I wonder if it's almost pilgrim's progress for 2019, um, because that's sort of what happens. Schofield comes alive. And, and a scene we didn't talk about, this film is so rich, a scene we didn't talk about, Eric, is how way, way before what we've been talking about, before the cherry tree scene, the two men are in a bunker. They're in the German bunker. And a oh, rat. That's right. A rat sets off an explosion that was meant to kill anyone who came through on the British side, right? And Schofield is buried in rubble and surely would have died. And his eyes are covered in soot and rock. And Blake pulls him out of the rubble, saves his life for sure. And then they leave the bunker, they leave the tunnel, and Schofield washes his eyes. It's it looks painful, you know, it's a film, but it just looks painful. And Man. so he Blake both physically resurrects him, if you will, and then Schofield sees. So Schofield sees anew. And then Man. like one minute later or something in the in the running of the film, we get the keep your eyes on the trees theme. And this film terminates with Schofield against a tree, his back to a tree, looking at his family, mm. as you said, and he has fully awakened back to his family. And so whatever is going on, and if this is Pilgrim's Progress or not, there is an absolutely profound transformation of this character that has taken place. I think the action scene of the, the exploding bunker is a whole picture for the broader film, actually, for what is happening with Schofield. Blake is the one who awakens him, and um, Schofield does indeed awaken all the way back to love his family and confront the picture of his, his wife and his children that he was tucking away and not seeing. So that tells us, on a jag here, that tells us, I think, that when we awaken, um, reading this Christianly, when we awaken, part of what a key part of what we awaken to is the beauty of the God-made family. Mm. Um, another scene that I that we wow. haven't talked about is when the church is ablaze. By the way, just before Schofield goes and sees, meets the 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 woman and the baby, the church. There is this spectacular image of this burning church mm. that again, no no one I read talked about, mm. and I think that is also symbolic. Mendez did something with churches before in Skyfall. He had the death of M in the church, which I talked about earlier. And before he meets the woman and child, the Germans have set this glorious cathedral totally ablaze. And you see this quick free French cross, by the way. Uh, De Gaulle led the free French movement heroically in this time. We don't get any broader commentary on that. But the church is on fire. The Germans mm. despise the very center of civilization. Um, Wow. And so I think there's something there too. Yeah, it's just phenomenal. There's so much, and even talking about it, there's so many things that are like, 
again, it's just that onion that you can keep, you can keep unraveling. So Owen, I want to ask you as we close here, you know, uh, one of the things we always, you, you, I watch a film and I get done with it and I say, look, well, what's the takeaway for me as a man? Because uh, I think it was Eugene Peterson who said this. He said, all great art is made to move you, right? Mm. So if you looked at cathedrals, the way they're designed is to move you from earth to heaven, like even the, the vaulted ceilings and whatever. So there's this movement that happens. So one of the, I find myself asking that, like I watched this film a number of times. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, there's, there's lessons to be taken away from it. How do you watch this as a man and then, and, then, and then go out in the world and experience that movement, put it into play, put it in action? What's the takeaway? It's almost unfair to ask me that because I've gone full college dorm room at 2 a.m. on you here already, <laughs> and my tank is exhausted. Your listeners are going to be like, what happened on that pod, that weird guy? That's okay. Our, our movies podcast was uh, two and a half hours, and uh, it's the most listened to podcast. So I could, I could do this. I could do this for 50 hours a week. No one wants that, but I, I, could, I love this. Um, oh, it's fascinating. Film really is the medium, I think, that, that engages us as Christians the most probably because it brings all the mediums together um, mm-hmm. in Malik's tree of life. By the way, I think I, another thing I think is happening. I'm sorry. I, I repent. Mea culpa. But another thing that is happening here is, is that trees, it's not just, oh, look, Malik likes trees and they mean something. I think probably what is in view here is the tree of life. Mm. Um, the tree of life in Revelation 22, or at least I'm reading this Christianly, um, mea culpa once more, mea maxima culpa. But um, in, in Revelation 22, two, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. It mm. is literally the cherry blossoms that heal Schofield and bring him back to life. Um, wow. So I think this is a profound exploration of the tree of life, like Malick's film, Tree of Life. I think 1917 is the most profound film since Tree of Life, but that's me putting myself on record. I think the takeaways are men in a, in a simple way can say, look, I, God has called me on this grand adventure. Um, and whether single or married, I'm, I'm called to live for God. And so um, there's a lot to say about that. That's a podcast or episodes in itself, right? I, I'm not yeah. going to get into how we do all that. Um, I do think that there's a further applica- application for men who are called to marriage and family, which is most of us, in that Mendes really does put a lot in the the category of awakening to being a husband and a father in the ways that we have been talking about. Mm. I think there is further in this film <clears throat> a profound call to men, surely, but to everyone, to awaken to the beauty of this world. And uh, read read through a Christian prism um, to understand that God is is beauty itself, and so even though the world is fallen and 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 the days are evil, there remains in God's common grace much beauty to be seen. And mm. so um, I think the film fundamentally, above all, calls us to that perspective. This is this is an awakening film, if you will, and so I think Mendes is saying wake up. You are in the chaos and the turmoil of, of everyday life in a fallen world, I'm saying. Wake up to beauty. Wake up to meaning. Mm. Wake up to goodness. The, the, the city is on fire. The cathedral, glorious cathedral is on fire. Wow. Uh, you, have enemies, you have enemies at hand on every side. Mm. And yet, 
And yet the cherry trees are blooming and soon they will bloom so much that the cutting down of the grove will be forgotten because wow. the, the leaves of the tree of the life, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of nations. Wow. Oh, and that's, it's just, I don't even know what to say. It's so amazing. I think, I think you could do this for a living. If the uh, strip mall seminary doesn't work out, you're definitely going to be in uh, film, <laughs> film critic school. <laughs> I, I have tried to say it every time I've written on it or spoken on it, that this is probably overheated all of this. But I, as you can well tell, and has happened for you, and you've said numerous, mm. very insightful things on this podcast as well. I think this is, I think there's a ton in this film. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that's true. And I think it gives uh, some of the men, some of the listeners, like if, you know, a lot of guys are watching films with their men's groups, whatever. It gives you something to talk about, think about. And, and I love what you said at the end, that, that path of awakening, um, which mm. is so much, I, I kind of like cherry trees better than red pills. Um, it's uh, yes. a, a much more beautiful picture. So I definitely encourage people to check out your works. We'll include links to the articles and your Substack and stuff like that so they can follow up with this discussion. But Owen, once again, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Yeah. And my final word would be uh, in, in concert with what we've been saying, keep your eyes on the trees. We think about mm. how sin came through a tree. We think about how atonement came through a tree. And we think about how in the new heavens and new earth, we will be fed by the tree of life itself. So everybody out there watching, keep your eyes on the trees. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. And again, a special thanks to Dr. Owen Strand for joining me and talking about 1917. Love to hear your feedback. What are your favorite man movies? I know we've done a show on it, but I'd love to hear some different takes on that as well. So definitely send those our way. By the way, if you're not yet a supporter of the show, definitely encourage you to support, become a member. You can do so on Patreon or at ericcon.com. You can join for as little as $5 a month to support the work of this show. Once again, we appreciate it. If you do get a chance, go over to iTunes. You can subscribe. You can leave a five-star rating, and you can also review the show. This helps get us out to as many people as possible. Until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. <laughs>